Hi everyone, hope you're all well. This is Lorcan Owens, I'm the host of Machnu Reflections and welcome to episode 9 of my podcast. In this episode I'm deviating from the usual topics I discuss concerning the Middle East and today I'm going to focus on Cambodia. Also first for the podcast I interview an Irishman, Colin Byrne, who has lived in Cambodia since 2014. Colm is the CEO of Sea Beyond Borders Ireland, an NGO that works to improve teaching and learning in Cambodia by training and mentoring teachers. Colm and I discuss the mission of Sea Beyond Borders, Colm's decision to move to Cambodia, and why development aid needs to have purpose and strategic vision in order to be meaningful and of value to both recipients and donors. Hi, Colm. Thanks for joining me today. You're based in Cambodia and you're actually the first Irish person I've interviewed. So that's sets you apart. You work for an organization called Sea Beyond Borders. You're a primary school teacher by profession, but you've transitioned into a whole different area, still related to education in Cambodia. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and about the organization you work for? Sure. Thanks, Lorcan, and thanks for inviting me on. It's quarter past six here on a on a hot Tuesday morning in Siem Reap in Cambodia. So my name's Colm, and I'm Irish, obviously, as I say, that's part of my identity. Another part of my identity is that I'm a teacher. So I taught in, in North County, Dublin, for 10 years in Dunabate Educate Together. And six years ago, I came out here to Cambodia volunteering. For a short stint and I'm still living here six years later. So I live here in Siem Reap with my boyfriend and work for the charity Sea Beyond Borders and very happy to be involved with them and very much enjoy uh, working and living here in Cambodia. Why did you decide to work for Sea Beyond Borders and what motivated you to move to Cambodia in the first place? Was it planned? Was it just a notion you took? Were you inspired by somebody else? What is it about Cambodia that has kept you there for so long? Yeah, sure. Well, to touch on the latter point first, my initial plans weren't to spend time in in any country long term. It was to stay in Ireland. But to be honest, which is a strange thing, is my brother always slagged me, teachers, two months holidays and all that, and great. But I found that a bit, you know, I need structure for my day. And I like a sense of purpose and to be doing something. I initially came out here to Cambodia to volunteer for a short stint. But there was something about the country when I did that was immediately magnetic. And I remember being here and I had the job to go back to Indunabate in Dublin, Ireland. But I was thinking, geez, here in July, could I ring my principal and ask, would there be any way I could take a year's leave? Uh, Because I immediately had very much an affinity with the place. And that affinity was with the people. Like all countries, Cambodia has good and bad in it. But there is something special, generally speaking, about Cambodian people in terms of their warmth. I'm quite a scattered person and always in a rush. But Cambodia is very chilled out and it's very laid back and that kind of suited me. And why CB on borders? Well, I'd been working for another NGO called Pepe, a terrific NGO. And that was training the students directly. But I'm a teacher and I wanted to create a larger impact or impact a little bit more scale. I'm a firm believer in the power of a teacher. And if you train a teacher to do his or her job well, 
that can have a very large impact because those teachers here are going to be teaching 45 children and I immediately was drawn by the founders Ed and Kate Shuttleworth in terms of a lot of NGOs here would give you a sales pitch as to why they're good but Ed and Kate was the exact opposite and they told me about the challenges they were encountering what was going wrong but why they believed that CB on Borders was a good model and being really convinced by that and being really convinced too that I could, I suppose, play a little bit of a part in that, which I'd like to think I have. So really good to be involved with them. What differences have you noticed between Irish society and Cambodian society? Presumably there are many and they're quite prominent, but specifically in the area of education, since that's where you work and that's where your interest lies. I presume there are massive differences, discrepancies in terms of class size, teacher training, maybe issues like corporal punishment still being prevalent in that area. Could you give us some insights into some of the differences you've noticed, even from a social level, society, and maybe some similarities as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it might sound strange. There's less than 10 Cambodians living on the island of Ireland, less than 10. Just tiny. Why is that? It's education because Cambodian people perhaps don't have the economics to get to Ireland and they don't have the required English level or whatever. But also there are some parallels between Cambodia and Ireland in terms of it's a very troubled past, like the north of Ireland, number one. Number two, it's blighted by emigration. So if you're an educated Cambodian or you aspire to earn a bit more money, you emigrate to, to Thailand or Vietnam. So that's another parallel. Another parallel with the north would be a very high suicide rates. Cambodia has an extremely high suicide rate. I think according to RUPP, the Royal University of Phnom Penh, only Greenland has a higher suicide rate. And you look at suicide rates in the UK and Ireland, Northern Ireland would have a very high suicide rate. So there are some similarities, I suppose, but in terms of educational challenges, massive, to be honest with you. And I think there was standardized testing, PZD testing carried out worldwide. And as a result of that standardized testing, it found that less than 3% of Cambodian children were reaching minimum standards in literacy and maths and science. As Ed says, that's a rounding error. It's absolutely minuscule. And they're the ministry's own figures. Number two, you go in grade two or grade one here, only half of Cambodian children can read one word. So it's very much a system that's built on rote learning, but not developing meaning. And I think worldwide, there's only two countries, Senegal and, and Zambia, that perform worse. So massive challenges on the one side, at the same time, to be honest with you, there's massive opportunities. Because when you give people a quality education with an emphasis on quality, it can really make a difference and really change society and change lives. Do you think the country is still recovering from the effects of the Khmer Rouge regime socially, psychologically and economically? Do you see that impact in terms of maybe not children nowadays because they didn't grow up under that regime, but through their parents and their grandparents? And there's a sense of it continuing from one generation to the next. Do you see that in society, socially or on a psychological level? Yeah, and it's something I, I've taught about just because a lot of friends of mine would know people who have died. There's definitely a significant element, I would say, of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder arising from the Khmer Rouge, a lack of perhaps awareness of 
how to deal with mental health challenges, so issues around trauma and grief, and how to deal with undesirable feelings. I've encountered several road accidents here in Cambodia, and the way maybe those things are processed and dealt with is in thorough, and I also believe that education has a has quite a role to play in it. We do a literacy program in CB on boys, and part of that is around teaching children about feelings and emotions and how your body reacts to that and how what that feeling means. But in an awful lot of instances, in Khmer, the language here, we don't have words for it. So we don't have words to express some of the, some people call them negative feelings. I call them undesirable because everyone gets, everyone feels jealous, everyone feels anger, everyone feels shame. I suppose it's how you deal with those things. So it's a complex issue, to be honest, mental health and suicide, but something that needs to be addressed. And we're in the education sphere, and I think we focus on quality, but in the health sphere as well, you get a lot of NGOs and charities here who are channeling money into physical health and into building hospitals. I suppose maybe what's needed is the next stage is looking at, there's a big issue around suicide, there's a big issue around mental health and how can we get the qualified people in? So those with expertise to deal with those topics and create a legacy where people have other options. Are there many aid organizations and NGOs there on the ground? I presume there would be quite a few. But are there disparities then in terms of their outcomes, their aims, their quality? And in relation to education, what's the NGO sector like specifically in relation to education, given that there are a lot of needs, as you've mentioned? Are some aid organisations involved just purely in the provision of buildings and supplies? And are there others then involved in something similar to training of teachers? You're right, there are a lot of NGOs. We have the second highest number per capita anywhere in the world here. And the problem isn't that there's not enough NGOs. It's not quantity. The problem is absolute quality. There's not enough good NGOs and there's not enough NGOs who are focused on quality. That's why I joined CB on Borders because lots of us who work in CB on Borders, we don't do it for the salary or for anything else that we do get adequately paid. We do it because we want to invest our time in something that's meaningful. And something that's genuinely contributing to the betterment of Cambodian society. So we train teachers and we mentor teachers on an ongoing basis. So over three years, we provide ongoing support and maths and literacy to teachers because initially we did teacher workshops and thought, oh, off you go, teachers, that will correlate and to improve teacher performance. But actually, we found that teachers need ongoing support. Over 80% of teachers were killed here during the Khmer Rouge. 93% of teacher trainers were killed. So the people who went in to become teachers often don't have the capacity to teach. One thing that recurs here is qualified teachers and unqualified teachers. As far as I'm concerned, there's no such thing as an unqualified teacher. We don't go to unqualified dentists or unqualified doctors. So to be a qualified teacher means you've, you know the content that you're meant to be teaching. So you know the addition, subtraction, the multiplication division and then you got the pedagogy the how to teach so when that's done right and when it's done with quality the impacts are massive we found in schools we work in not not our schools but schools we work in government public schools children's test scores improved by 45 percent and what does that mean it means children learn in school and when children are learning in school they're way more likely to stay in school 
So the average Cambodian child lasts just 4.7 years in school. And the reason for that is clear, they're not learning. But if they can learn, they're much more likely to stay in school. So without sending too grand, Lorcan, there was a bit of a calling with CB on board. So I think it was in line with my values, in line with my beliefs. And lastly, I would say it has a great Cambodian team with, led by our country manager, Paul, who really own the projects and deliver quality. Is corporal punishment still an issue out there? Is it pervasive? Are there policies against it? Are there official regulations against it? Or what's the status of corporal punishment within the education system in Cambodia? There would be an element of that, yeah. Uh, and there would be an element of teachers ruling a little bit by fear. And Cambodia is a very hierarchical society. And standing up to status quo and standing up to authority perhaps isn't as prevalent as it is in today's Europe or today's Australia. So that would definitely be an issue. There's also the issue that you get a lot of NGOs here who are looking for quick fire solutions or sticker plaster solutions and a lot of maybe misdirected intentions. So people have great intentions, but are very naive. So they want to build a school or they want to give away resources for an actual fact. The best resource is the teacher, and how can we invest in the teacher? That can be a problem with smaller NGOs, and with the larger NGOs, then it's a problem of, you know, sometimes you get people on very high salaries who are flying into Cambodia from Europe, spending very little time here and not maybe understanding the contextual relevance. But I suppose there are positive drivers for change, and there's people in Cambodia and within the ministry, definitely, who we have a close relationship with, who are striving for better and looking and drilling down to see what does quality look like, number one, and number two, how can we deliver quality in a way that's not just going to work for a short term, but going to be sustainable and long lasting. That's an interesting point you're making. Do you think maybe there are issues about money going in the wrong area? There isn't maybe accountability. Donors themselves have all the best intentions, but they're not strategizing. They don't have clear outcomes, clear goals. They're not working on the ground. Are there issues as well about white savior complex, the global north trying to help the global south? To what extent do you think education and having people on the ground is important to deliver positive quality outcomes in the area of education and other areas of human development where you are? and in a general sense, in the South? Good question, yeah. Uh, they're very important. Being honest with you, sometimes I feel that there needs to be a bit of a donor education. How are donors educated on what quality looks like? So, for example, if you're an education NGO, I ask the question, what's the purpose? The purpose is to improve learning for children. And if the NGO, be it a very big NGO or a small NGO, doesn't deliver that, doesn't deliver improved learning, well, then forget it. Uh, and there needs to be a relentless focus on what improves learning. Rightly, in NGOs and international development, there's a, a strong focus on compliance, making sure child protection is all in order, making sure financial transparency, etc. So that's needed 100%. I would say as well, there needs to be as much focus on, okay, how are we measuring learning for children? How do CB on borders programs compare against national programs or against bigger NGO programs or smaller? I, I know the answer, to be honest, we compare very well, but I'd love to see as much focus on that. 
and looking at what quality looks like. And then for other donors who are not governments, an education with those. So a lot of NGOs would play to the emotions. I'm an emotional person. I'm passionate. And that's good. But sometimes passion needs to be supplemented with logic. Our founders, Ed and Kate, would be extremely logical people, particularly Ed. And when you can marry passion with logic, so that there's theory, that it's research-based, it's not just making it up on the back of a cigarette packet, that we have a system that works. If donors look for that and go beyond just the looking at the, the picture of the poor child in, in torn clothes or the picture of that seeks to portray pity for Cambodian children, I think hopefully we can get to the stage where we move beyond that a little bit and we go, okay, how can we have solidarity with Cambodia and what will deliver value for my investments? So if I'm a donor, I'm contributing a million dollars, ten dollars, what value am I getting for that? Is it just sponsoring a child where the donor is just sponsoring ten children or is it maybe sponsoring a teacher? Or is it maybe even better sponsoring a teacher's mentor where you can create impact at a bit more scale, something that's a bit more sustainable and longer lasting. So in Ireland, for instance, we have development education. So Irish Aid spend part of their money on educating the Irish public. In Australia, we have ACFID, so the Australian Council for International Development, to educate the public on what good looks like. And I think that's really, really important that people who are giving the money have an awareness that what quality looks like and what will deliver value for their money as opposed to just purely emotion. And I think it's not just the amount that's spent, it's the quality of what's been spent. I remember when I first came involved in development, talking to Nadine Ferris France, somebody who was a parent in the school I used to teach in, and she was, and still is a firm proponent of partnership through development, as opposed to just the, here you go, here's the money, off you go and run with it. It's really looking at, okay, what are the expertise as well as the money? So what are the expertise that we can draw on from the global north that will help the global state? Who are the educators or the researchers or the policy analysts that can help our work here in Cambodia? And then it is also, you're right, though, in terms of colonialism, there's an element of that. But I think in terms of governments, most of them are well-intentioned. still needs to be donor education and there needs to be a focus on quality and what quality looks like. And then you go with the, in terms of what the spend is as well. So the UK spends 0.7. We in Ireland, I think we're up to 0.35 of GNI, but a pledge to make 0.7. I hope we reach that, and that's great to see. We also get funds from the Australian government. So all that is, is important, and international aid is important. But as well as quantity, it's the quality of what it's spent on. It. Education, I think, it goes beyond a sticking plaster and... So education, I think, can be, when it's done right, offers great value. And the relationship to ensure that it's not a colonial uh, nature, that it's a partnership and that programs are being led, I think, in country. Uh, so programs that are led in Cambodia by Cambodian people tend to be more effective than those that are delivered from somebody sitting in, in London or Dublin or Sydney or wherever. In your opinion, Colm, do you think credibility and transparency are important issues in terms of the marketing of aid, international development aid? Let's say from an Irish perspective, a couple of years ago, there were a lot of prominent stories about charities in Ireland, in an Irish domestic context, who were not acting in an ethical manner, 
and it undermined the credibility of NGOs and charities in a general sense. Do you see any issues with that on the ground in Cambodia? Do you see that maybe there's a lot of public relations exercise taking place around the area of NGOs and development aid, quality versus quantity, money being spent, but maybe money being wasted? What's your opinion and expertise and thoughts on that? Yeah, great question. And there's a drive, to be honest with you, in the aid world to spend money on things. So instead of spending money on the training the teacher, let's spend money on the school building. Or instead of spending money on the government official who's training the teacher, let's spend money on building a library. What I know of libraries that have been built in Cambodia, no one's in them. Or school buildings, there's a lot of schools here that have very, very basic resources. In terms of a roof that's not working and very basic resources. But if they have a good teacher, that's so much more powerful. You can throw money away in terms of a lot of donors here love to put their names on buildings. We built this school or we built this well. You get a group of people coming over to build a well. They pay a certain amount of money and then the next week the well's gone because it's awaiting the next group to come over to build a well. It's all a system. But looking for transparency is really important and our, obviously all our accounts will be published on our website and we're a firm believer in that. And to be honest with you, Lorcan, though we make no apologies, we're also a firm believer in people and we invest in people. So our staff are highly trained. We're paid decently. We're not paid above the going rate or below it, but we do have qualified staff who train teachers. So teachers are paid by the government. We train the mentors and the mentors then in turn train the teachers and the mentors are paid $3 an hour and they coach and collaborate with teachers in terms of delivering ongoing performance. But with that, obviously, we also work very closely with our staff. We train them, so as they in turn train the mentors, and we work with the leaders from the ministry here in terms of developing their capacity. Because when you have 80% of teachers were killed, 93% of teacher trainers were killed, there's a, there's a shortage of people who can teach. I think over 60% of our costs go on staffing, and that's a good thing because without adequate levels of staff, we don't have the programs. Education ultimately is a people business and it's about investing in people. It's about people who can deliver quality to help teachers who in turn improve learning for children. Supposing there's an organization or there's an entity or there's a person who's listening to this podcast right now and they're interested in the work you're doing, maybe they want advice, on your philosophy, on your application, on your strategy, how you work on the ground, how you manage to engage with local stakeholders, gain the trust of the community, or perhaps there are donors out there who are interested in contributing towards your work. Who should they contact? How do they go about it? And what advice would you offer to them? Yeah, thanks for asking. They can contact me or they can contact CB On Borders. So S-E-E, CB On Borders. You can look us up on social media, send us a message there, or we have an email, info at cbonborders.org. And a lot of our success, to be honest with you, Lorcan, has been from meeting people, having a chat with them, meeting them for a coffee, or pre-COVID inviting them to see what we do on the ground here. But I'm available for a Skype or team in Cambodia or wherever, Australia, England, Ireland are always available. Um, we need people who are prepared to give us a chance. Cambodian children before COVID were 
11% shorter than children in Thailand and Vietnam. Why is that? Because they don't have as good diet. Why is that? Possibly because they don't have the education. So we need that to change. We need to ensure that Cambodian children aren't being left behind. So if anyone is ever interested in investing their time, number one, so if they're interested in speaking with us, so they have a skill or something to share or a connection, please do contact us. Or secondary, if they know of somebody or they themselves are interested in investing some money in us, and we see it as an investment as opposed to merely a donation, please do have a chat and we're always open. Just something I thought about there as a final question for you. We're both graduates of Marino Institute of Education in Dublin. We're both trained teachers. Do you feel that your experience in Marino, your experience in Donabate, your 10 years as a teacher in Dublin, informed or created the curiosity, the desire to do the work you're doing now? I know that one of my favourite modules was with Barbara O'Toole, Human Rights in Education. And we talked and discussed about all kinds of issues, female genital mutilation, traveller rights, issues about donor responsibility, the ethics of aid, international development. And I found it fascinating and really, really insightful. Maybe subconsciously or consciously, I'm not sure which, but it's always carried with me. That was definitely one of the modules that stayed in my head. Do you feel that your background has led you in some way or another along the path that you're currently leading now? and your experience in an Educate Together school in Dublin exposing you to different cultures and ideas? Or do you feel that it's a happy opportunity that arrived at a later point in your life? Being honest with you, in terms of Marino, a little bit. And I know Barbara very well. She's fantastic. What made the real impact for me, Lorcan, in terms of altruism and all that, a couple of things. <laughs> Being honest with you, I remember my brother was a big U2 fan. I remember watching the 97 European Music Awards <laughs> And Bono got on stage, well, here we go. And he was saying, accepting this award for the album Pop. And I think France were doing various nefarious things at the time. He was basically goading the crowd, saying the awards were in France. And he was saying, what a country this is. Yay, everyone was cheering. What food, yay, everyone cheering. What wine, yay, everyone cheering. Then he said, what about what your government just did? And then everyone boos because they acknowledge the abhorrent act that France were doing in terms of dropping bombs. And then he said, what are you going to do about it? And Bono gets a lot of criticism, and some of it is quite justified. But he also does something, in fairness to him, he acts on it. My dad died, I remember, 11 years ago. Uh, this day, actually, today. And he was kind of a firm believer in doing something about problems. So, yeah, there's a massive problem here in Cambodia. And we know that. And there's problems in social problems in Ireland everywhere. But there's people in the world, the John Humes, Robert Kennedys, Mo Molums, who do something about it. And we're doing a little bit, a little bit to improve things here. And the final answer to the question in terms of the effect of me, the last thing I would say is I had the good fortune to teach in Dunabate, as I said, and I worked with some really remarkable teachers there. We a principal called Maeve, who's been to Cambodia now five times other fantastic teachers who encourage children not just to learn about human rights but act on them and that they do still have a firm focus on SDG literacy. I've read a lot of school reports in Ireland in terms of how schools are doing performance and literacy and, and maths which is great. I look forward to the day when school reports are commenting on how many of the sustainable development goals to children know and what do they do 
to create the world a more equal place. I know in Dunna Bay, for instance, there was one child a couple of years ago and he made his confirmation. And he donated his a portion of his confirmation money to a Cambodian charity here, Pepe. I thought, wow, if you've done nothing else, you've made an impact on that kid. And that kid is more likely to do good, to act good, and maybe more importantly as well, to have a bit of thought into what he's donated. I think there's a lot of cynicism around doing good and do-gooders and all of that, but some people who do good actually do do good and they need time, support and energy behind them. That's really interesting and your work is incredible and fair play to yourself and See Beyond Borders for all the work you do in Cambodia. Hopefully this will raise more awareness about the work you're doing to the benefit of children increasing education standards and ultimately allowing the Cambodian people to manage their own affairs and to lead on the educational reforms that you're trying to instigate in partnership with the Ministry of Education. So thank you so much, Colm, for your time today. I really enjoyed talking to you as my first Irish guest on my podcast, and I wish you all the best in your work, and have a good day. Thanks, Lorcan. And yeah, I think we, I've made massive mistakes here, being honest. I came here six years ago, full of enthusiasm, bright-eyed, and geez, I think back to the mistakes I made. Uh, but I do work for a good organisation at the moment, and have a real honour of being part of that and appreciate the invite and you having me on so thanks so much Lord. Many thanks again to Colin Byrne for joining me for my podcast this week thanks again to you the listeners for listening if you have any comments or opinions or questions or insights into Colin's work or life in Cambodia or development, or education, or indeed any of the other topics I've covered in the other episodes of my podcast, please feel free to share them, comment. You can contact me on LinkedIn personally myself, or on Twitter, or indeed on Facebook. I'll be in touch in the coming weeks with my next episode. In the meantime, stay safe and well. Thank you once again, and good luck.